0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, so, it's the contention of this series that our listening is the dark matter of musical cultures. That's what uh, the title of tonight's uh, talk suggests, underpinning the way composers and creators write, the way performers play, and the way we, the audience, attend to the music we're experiencing. But what happens if we shine a light into that darkness, if we listen in to that dark material? Well, in this talk, Music Made of Listening, I want us to listen into a special part of our listening culture. Silence. Or rather, non-silence. There isn't such a thing as true silence because there is no place in the known universe where there is no energy being radiated in some dimension, as Seth Horowitz's work reminded us in the first of these lectures. So if not quite silence, then collective quiet, at least. Now this may seem contradictory for those of you who may have heard the second of these talks which was a plea for a noisier listening culture of the music we call classical and an explication and a demonstration of the idea that our concert halls especially modern concert halls aren't fit for purpose because of the deliberate deprivation of our agency as listeners that they inspire in any of us who sit in them, and because of the music of the last four centuries and more was written as a dance with us listeners, not for our passive contemplation and perniciously pretentious reverence, at least in my view. Well, all that said, I am going to be talking about regions of quiet or relative silence today by exploring in particular the revelation of the American composer John Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds, a piece that was made famous and infamous as his so called silent piece, but which, as the title of Carl Gann's book about 433 reminds us, is in fact only another proof of the truism that there is no such thing as silence. That's a study to which uh, much of what I'll say about Cage today is indebted, and it's also a slight change, I know, from the advertised abstract, for which not quite apologies. Now, and as proof of how listening, as idea and practice, not only musical but mindful and spiritual too, is a vital part of today's compositional culture, the composer and pianist Rolf Hind is with us to share his ideas and his music. It's exploration of regions of listening and being that are made manifest through orchestral and theatrical pieces, including the world's first mindfulness opera, Lost in Thought. And we will all be turning our listening into creative practice here at the Museum of London and all of you watching online as Rolf leads us in a deep listening session, thanks to the work of the American composer, improviser and thinker Pauline Oliveros. Prepare yourselves. Now, composed silences aren't only though the preserve of classical or avant-garde traditions. Here's the French musician Stella and Le Silence. personally, a gift of silence, a a few seconds of respite from a noisy world of clamouring pop culture and great hair too. A very avant-garde conception, in fact, of of what a song and a chorus and an idea can be in 1967. Mind you, another French creative artist had got there already in making silence and essential creative material, or at least a representation of it. This is a surreal, black-bordered, humoresque of a piece from 1897 by Alphonse Allais. It's called The Funeral March for the Obsequies of a Great Deaf Man, a piece, as you can see, that consists of no notes at all, Three empty systems of music, lento, rigolando, a stultified, petrified, slow tempo and a piece that doesn't need a a double bar at the end of it, a conventional way that you signify the end of a piece of music in notation because its end is implicit in its subject matter. Ali had obviously never got my note that there can be no such thing as silence, since the whole gag of this piece is built on the idea that the deaf can't perceive vibration, not true, and that true silence might be a possibility. Well, it kind of is, but only in our imaginations, only in the two static dimensions of this page. Ali's silent music as a surrealist gag, though, isn't a a lone phenomenon. In 1932, in the United States, in Etude magazine, here's Willie Wimble's uh, Song of the Sphinx. And as you can see, the cartoonist here, uh, the the, the, the gag ends up with him saying to his mother, why are you not practicing? Well, because I've written this piece. And the piece, as you can see at the end, the Song of the Sphinx is notated in a decidedly unorthodox 2-4. I promise you that those rests don't add up. He, his music theory is not great, wee Willy Wimble, unfortunately. But the ruse here is to compose a piece that would get him out of practicing the piano. It consists of no musical sound at all. And Again, this goes against my idea, our idea, that potential silence is a vessel for concentrated listening. And in fact, the definitive musical skill across all musical genres. listen was the most important word that the conductor Claudio Abado used to tell his orchestral musicians all over the world in rehearsal. Listening sensitivity is the root of jazz players' tuition and of any improvising tradition. It's the basis of all true musical proficiency, whether you're a record producer or a pianist or whether you're about to embark on one of Pauline Oliveris' deep listening uh, exercises as we are at the Museum of London. Because to listen, to really listen to the sounds that we make in relation to what our fellow musicians are doing, listen to our instruments, to understand our part as only one fraction of the total musical universe. Well, these are vital gifts that Willie Wimble willingly gives up in order to get out of practising. Some of you perhaps know the feeling. I do, anyway. Um, now, you may notice something else about this cartoon, uh, who, the name of the artist who, who came up uh, with this uh, comic strip. As you can see at the bottom, this, that signature at the bottom right is High Cage. Um, no relation at least not as far as we know, of the composer John Cage. Twenty years later, on Friday the 29th of August in 1952, I beg your pardon, 1952, a concert of music was presented by the Woodstock Artists Association at the Maverick Concert Hall in New York State. It was played by the pianist David Tudor. And here is the Maverick Concert Hall's indoor and outdoor auditorium. You can see that the doors are shut, but uh, the audience sits both outside and inside this this beautiful auditorium nestled in, in the woods of uh, upper New York State. Well, that day, that evening, David Tudor presented a mixed programme of avant-garde works by composers from Pierre Boulez to Morton Feldman from Christian Wolfe to Earl Brown, and by the 39-year-old composer John Cage. And Tudor sat at the piano to play a piece that was confusingly titled Four Pieces on the original programme. It was a list of durations, four minutes, 33 seconds, then 30 seconds, two, 23, and 140. But in fact, this was one piece in three <laughs> movements which was signalled in the performance by David Tudor closing the piano lid at the start of each one and opening it between the movements, the opposite of what would conventionally happen in a, in a sonata recital, let's say. Uh, he was timing the duration of, of the work of each of the movements with a stopwatch and looking at a, a manuscript notation of 4 minutes 33 seconds so as he could keep his place in the, in the music. And here, in fact, is David Tudor performing this work decades later, 1989. This is a film performance in the US, preceded by John Cage himself, taking a question from the audience. Let's have a listen for two and a half minutes. I'm not going to play you all of 433 at this stage. Here we go.
1: I have a question for you. How would you feel if someone made some rude bodily noise in the middle of your piece, 433? (laughs) I, I hear, uh, I would simply listen. I think the sounds are continually taking place. One of the things that's been noticed uh, from a musical point of view is the many coughs that take place at concerts. And for most, for most of our musical literature, coughing is a kind of interruption or a flaw, it has nothing to do with music. Whereas if we have have an interest in in sound rather than, that is to say, the experience of listening, a cough is, 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 uh, is as audible and finally as interesting as any other sound. The material of music is sound and silence. Integrating these is composing. I have nothing to say and I am saying it.
0: It's pretty remarkable that isn't it uh, and a lot happened in in those sounds i think uh, as you see we didn't obey the instruction there to keep the volume down there was that throbbing hum which was actually the the reproduction of the of the film in addition there were your own Russell's laughter as well happened in that roughly 30 seven or eight seconds of 4.33 that we experienced. There was my own interjection at some point. There were your own movements and your own breathing part of that uh, performance. I mean, as as John Cage was saying there, composition, the integration of sound and silence, and that we should attend to every sound and listen to everything potentially as music, as interesting sound. A cough, David Tudor's stopwatch that you could hear going throughout as he's very uh, acutely and considerately timing uh, each of the movements of 4 minutes and 33 seconds. Uh, So here Here is a picture of what David Tudor was playing, or at least one of the versions of 4 minutes 33 seconds that he was playing. This is his own recreated version of the score or the manuscript of 4.33. And you may be able to pick out here that there's a slightly different duration. You'll see at the bottom of the... um, if I can make this thing work, yeah. Uh, the, the, the the first movement in this edition lasts 33 seconds, not 30. Uh, Cage himself misremembered or changed the durations of the movements uh, later on in the in the work's publication history. But the, the the crucial thing here is that this is an example of what's called proportional notation in which space on the page maps precisely onto a, a period or a space of time. In this case two and a half centimeters you can see on the top left uh, equals one crotchet and because the tempo is marked, the tempo of this piece is marked a crotchet equals 60 that means that one second passes every two and a half centimeters of, of manuscript. Because we're in four four, four beats to the bar, each bar is 10 centimeters long, a piece of pure duration. It's a little bit larger on the screen here at the Museum of London. So, our series of questions about 4.33 starts here. How and why did Cage come up with these 4 minutes and 33 seconds of silence that aren't silent? And why are there three movements? Why these particular durations? And what happened to precipitate the composition of a piece that isn't a surrealist joke or a cartoon-like gag, but rather a stick of musical kryptonite directed the whole edifice of the canons of classical music and its reception, whose seismic shocks the musical world is still reverberating with, and reverberating noisily, too. Well, I'll introduce some precedents of 433 as musical and creative idea in a moment, but just to think more about what we've just seen and heard. Now, As you saw back at the Maverick Concert Hall in New York, open to the elements, Uh, John Cage describes what happened at that very first performance on the 29th of August, 1952, and conveniently, his reminiscences uh, take place in three movements. He says, uh, What the audience thought was silence, because they didn't know how to listen, was full of accidental sounds. You could hear the wind stirring outside during the first movement, during the second, raindrops began pattering the roof, and during the third, the people themselves made all kinds of interesting sounds as they talked or walked out. (laughs) So, this was a, which you were welcome to do today, ladies and gentlemen by. anyway, This was a symphony or at least a soundscape of natural sounds, not normally considered part of the musical experience or even thought of as musical material, but which, when attended to by that audience, were alchemized into aesthetic objects as never before in a concert hall, or at least for everyone who didn 't walk out. But it's not only in a bucolic Henry Thoreau-like idyll that 433 has its place and finds its meaning. Now, as you noticed in Tudor's film performance, the, the soundscape that we created and, and that was created on the film we've, we've attended to—that means that every time 433 is performed, when it's done in that concert hall context, it actually works with the conventions of the, of the classical concert in a way very similar to the music that we call classical. 433, really, and it's experienced by us, is a of the rituals of the concert hall turned inside out and into the substance of the work so that we hear a universe of environmental sound such that a cough and a stopwatch might be considered music all through the simple application of our listening. Well just some of the thoughts and provocations that 433 I think still inspires but remember what Cage said about the coughing and its interest as pure sonic object. Well that's a Cajun clue that the roots of 433 aren't in silence at all, but rather in a new conception of listening. Because by admitting all environmental and accidental sounds into the aestheticised gallery of sonic contemplation, a cage isn't asking us to hold our breath to create a true, idealised silence, which can't exist, but rather to accept music as an art of noise that you might create on a sidewalk in New York or Mumbai or Tokyo If you perform 433 on a street corner there, the traffic noise, the speech, the electronic chirps, everything else that passes your attention in that time becomes part of what 433 is, not silent at all. So 433 can be a symphony of urban noise as well as environmental soundscape which is something that another composer had already thought of and already conceived four decades earlier. The Italian composer Luigi Russolo, one of the futurists from the start of the 20th century, created a set of instruments called intona rumore, noisemakers, in order to create hymns to the symphony of modernity that he heard around him on the streets, in the sounds of industry and factories and even war, conflict and mechanical terror. He created music like this. Uh, this is Rousselot's Awakening of the City from 1913, and there he is with his instruments. <laughs> That's, those, are, those sounds, the recording is probably from, from 1914. So you can hear how Rousselot is already trying to transform the, the sounds of the urban world into into compositions. And really, this is a piece which is a, a visionary accommodation of noise into music and vice versa. And it's a piece and a, a project of Rousselot's that prefigures the the modernist sonic visions of Edgar Varèse, who would have uh, alarms and whistles in, in, as part of his orchestral setup, but it's also a premonition of the music-concrete of the 1940s of Pierre Schaeffer, who would record trains and factories and turn them into minutes of musical experience. And really, in our digital age, it's also a premonition of electronic sampling and all the things that we can do with, as recording artists with sound today. In a way, Luigi Russolo uh, had prefigured all of those developments but it's also a precursor of 433. Because if listening is the dark matter of all musical culture, then so too is noise. Think of the supposedly unwanted sounds that are part of all musical performance by acoustic instruments, the audible breaths of woodwind or brass players before their instruments sound, the clack and percussion of the keys and finger holes, the grain and ghost of the string players' fingers on wood and string, the white noise of vibrations that lie under every note they play, or the noise of the piano lid, and the turning of pages in David Tudor's performance. Cage's piece is about turning noise into art, just as much as Rousselot's. So, everyday objects, sonic objects in that case of the modern world, turned into mandalas of artistic meditation, framing the outside world with the transforming spectacles of the concert hall or the gallery. There's a precedent for all this in the visual arts too, and from just a few years later than Rousselot's art of noise. Marcel Duchamp's Fountain from 1917. It was submitted but rejected from the Society of Independent Artists Exhibition in New York that year. And Duchamp wasn't only an influence on Cage but also his friend in New York. They played endless games of chess together. And even if recent research actually shows that R. Mutt, you can see who's the artist who's signed the urinal there, uh, is likely actually to have been the pseudonym of the eccentric, what well, we now call her a performance artist, Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhofen, uh, rather than Duchamp himself, in which case this appropriation of the everyday is only taking a stage further if Duchamp's actually nicking somebody else's artwork. (laughs) Um, Anyway, the idea of placing Fountain in a gallery, or wanting to, and turning this everyday object into an artwork through the magic of the context of that way of seeing is analogous to the shock of the noise, the non-silence of 433 in a concert hall or here tonight. Cage had been preparing for the shock of 433 in his own music as well. Here he is in the 1940s interfering with a piano. In fact, he's not interfering with it at all, but conjuring a new sound world from an otherwise conventional instrument. This is the prepared piano. came into existence in the early 1940s uh, thanks to creative necessity. He lacked uh, sufficient space in a theatre for a percussion ensemble for a dance piece. So Cage turned a single piano into an assemblage of noise-making possibilities of wild and unexpected variety by inserting screws and erasers and bolts and other objects between the strings uh, of the piano. The result was this system of preparation uh, for a set of sonatas and interludes for a prepared piano. And you can see we go all all the way up and down the keyboard and every string has well which strings with which uh, with which bit furniture bolt with which screw which material plastic rubber metal all of these things precisely inserted when any pianist like well finally in fact wants to give a performance of the sonatas and interludes for prepared piano uh, by John cage so it's composed with real care, this uncanny instrument um, and what happens is that you, you see the, the notation there, that's the third of the, the, the sonatas and interludes. Um, it looks like a relatively conventional piece of piano music but it sounds like this. gorgeous gamelan-like sounds that that John Cage makes the piano make and John Tilbury releases in in that performance. But there's something else important going on in this music, which its notation reveals, which is the way it's structured. In fact, this music, for all the plasticity of the sounds that it makes, is structured in a highly static and highly formal way. In fact, it's made up of a repeated sequence of, of bars, of measures, of different lengths. So the notes themselves are suspended like mobiles within a pre-existing temporal framework. The series of eight bars that repeats a total of four times with another a sequence of eight bars of different lengths afterwards. And Cage's focus in this music isn't on a directional harmony or melody. It's a different way of thinking from the way that so much music, like that of his teacher in Los Angeles, Arnold Schoenberg, say, works, which builds up patterns of tension that require release through the necessities of musical and emotional expression. Well, Cage's time, Cage time, if you like, has a feeling instead that the the notes and the sounds that we hear are placed like objects in a landscape, a landscape of time. It's a rhythmic and temporal grid that exists simultaneously connected to yet separate from the notes themselves. It's a complicated process to discover in the notation in a way, but I think we feel this in the the, the sounds the music makes. It's something he takes a stage further in a piece from 1950, a string quartet in four parts. Uh, The music we hear isn't uh, the same as the score, but you will have the same impression. And here, uh, in fact, what happens is that every uh, throughout the register, throughout the tessitura of the string quartet, every note occurs in the same place. So that, that particular G or A in the first violin is always the same one, the same dynamic you'll hear. Again, you have this impression of the as a constellation of sounds that are projected somehow onto a uh, onto this screen of time here's what it sounds like <laughs> There were the... Word the further epiphanies before the composition of 433, There was Cage's encounter with the Chinese I Ching, or Book of Changes, and its chance operations, thanks to the teenage prodigy and polymath Christian Wolfe. Now, the important thing here is that through the application of the I Ching, Cage could turn the choice of which rhythm, pitch, attack, and dynamic came next in the notes of a piece, or in this piece, his Music of Changes, a huge work for solo piano, into objectively determined parameters. The I Ching and the application of this hexagram did the work instead. So that means that the usual function of a composer, or as we usually usually think of it anyway, i.e. deciding which sounds come next in a piece, was handed over to a randomising computation it's not quite that simple because Cage is setting the boundaries in which the I Ching operates. But nonetheless, the idea is to remove his ego, his subjectivity, from the compositional process. Um, so let's hear what this piece sounds like. This is the music of Changes, roughly an hour long. David Tudor himself is playing it. A piece, another piece that was written for him. <laughs> Music of a radically different style, quote unquote, we would say from the sonatas and interludes, but it shows how rigorously Cage applied the hundreds of thousands of toying costs that he needed to do on bus stops all over the city, as well as at home in New York. Months and months of work, constant work to make the decisions that which note would happen next. And instead of thinking, I'm not sure what that sound means or if it's the right one, Cage accepted uh, the results of, of what that. Computation of the hexagram gave him, in order to result in in the music we've just heard. We hear it as a sequence, but for Cage himself, it was made as a a, a random system, apparently random systems of uh, of the way that notes follow one another. There was, uh, we, so we've now got a kind of, uh, by the early 1950s in his life, we've got this idea of openness to noise and the everyday Rousselot and Duchamp. Cage has stripped music down to a fundamental of duration as the primary field in which sonic events happen and that score too of music and changes is another example of proportional notation so that the space of the manuscript maps on to a, to a period of time and he's also discovered chance procedures to determine and generate the articulation of musical parameters in ways that previous composers would never have tolerated and all of these ideas are in service of the transcendence of ego and the avoidance of the expression of subjectivity which also resonated with what he'd learnt from the Zen thought of Dyset's Taitaro Suzuki's classes which he attended at Columbia University. But there is more, framing time and framing silence. Well, there was another friend, another visionary, and another bold artistic gesture before 33 became possible. The painter Robert Rauschenberg and his white paintings that were exhibited at Black Mountain College in 1951. This this version of and this is a three-panel version of the white paintings, exhibits another kind of fulsome emptiness that's actually about confronting our perceptions and preconceptions about what looking at art might be. What we're looking at here is the idea of looking at visual art. And this was the perceptual paradox that Rauschenberg created with the exhibition of these paintings. A direct influence from the visual arts for Cage's bravery in filling his equivalent of the art gallery, the concert hall, with an emptiness that's anything but empty in 433. His version of looking at looking, listening to listening. Now, Rosenberg and Cage's friendship was one of the crucial catalysts of mid-century creativity. Yet there was one final piece of the jigsaw, a personal epiphany that Cage experienced at Harvard University of Boston. Uh, In fact, here, to be precise, Uh, but on his own, uh, without these two straight-out-of-central-casting 1950s scientists, who are magnificent nonetheless. Uh, This is the anechoic chamber at Harvard University, which is a place that does what it says on the tin. It's an a place without echo, in which sounds cannot reverberate and which is as quiet a place as it's possible for human beings to make on Earth. And it works thanks to those foam cones that you can see sticking out from every part of the room's geometry. And in fact, they're underneath that gantry as well. So uh, if you haven't been to an anechoic chamber, you walk out over the sea of strange foam sculptures. Being in deep snow is about as close a natural world phenomenon as you can get to the experience of an anechoic chamber but it's a weird sensation when you're there because you feel lost you're no longer able to use the subtle echo location that we're always employing when we hear our voices in any space you feel instead you can only communicate with yourself like being inside your own head never a comfortable place to be For Cage, being immersed in the anechoic chamber in 1951 was an experience that gave him another vital insight towards 433. No such thing as silence, even here. And here's how he wrote about the experience in one of his essays, Indeterminacy. As you can see, in that silent room I heard two sounds, one high and one low. Afterward I asked the engineer in charge why, if the room was so silent, I had heard two sounds. He said... Described them, I did. He said the high one was your nervous system in operation, the low one was your blood in circulation. Well in fact the latest thinking on Cages two sounds is that it's description can't conform to scientific fact, because those high and low sounds aren't really the operation of the nervous system or blood flow, which we simply can't hear. We may sense it as a vibration, but we don't hear those things. They're rather internal acoustic illusions that were possibly a mild tinnitus or a blood pressure condition, which may be one of the reasons of his uh, one of the conditions that led to his death from a stroke in 1992. But whatever the precise cause, Cage's direct experience of non-silence even in the most silent place on supposedly, the anechoic chamber, gave him at last the creative fuel he needed to make 433. And he did compose this piece. Sorry, I'm going to flick through Cage on side. That's a beautiful clip. Anyway, <laughs> my apologies. Here is the most abstract notation uh, that uh, Cage came up with in 1953 uh, for, uh, for for 433. Now, time is flowing here again proportionally from from right to sorry from left to right. The vertical lines mark the divisions between the movements. It's a score that bears a striking relationship to the three-panel version of Rauschenberg's white paintings, doesn't it? That we will be saw earlier. But here we encounter another of the paradoxes of 433. Why three movements? And why 433 as the total duration? Well, even Cage himself seems not fully to know. He says he composed the piece using the same method of working as he did for the Music of Changes, preparing those I Ching charts. Although in a later telling of the story, he says he was actually using tarot cards. Anyway, here's what he says. I built up each movement by means of short silences put together. It seems idiotic, but that's what I did. I didn't have to bother with the pitch tables or the amplitude, the volume tables. All I had to do was work with the durations. I didn't know I was writing 433. I built it up very gradually, and it came out to be 433. I just might have made a mistake in addition. Well, Cage got lucky. Uh, that's one interpretation. Uh, in fact, the coincidence is he'd already dreamt of a piece in 1948, but it was, it was going to be called Silent Prayer. and It was designed to compete and confound the Musac Corporation. Four minutes 30 is roughly the, the, the length of a, it's rather an, a long side of a 78 RPM record. So it, the idea was it would be put on radio play and again, a bit like Stella's Le Silence, it would be an antidote to an increasingly noisy world. So guess what happens when he writes four 4.33. By coincidence, it ends up being precisely the same length that he dreamt up four years earlier. Let's thank the universe and thank the I Ching. Kyle Gann, uh, in No Such Thing As Silence, says, what a happy coincidence. Somebody suspicious in nature might conclude that the mistake, in addition, served to bring the piece as close as possible to that predetermined four and a half minutes. Who knows? But the point about all of this is that it's composed as a fully-fledged piece of music. And the precision, however Cage manipulated the process of its composition, tells us that, but there are these other factors as well. The three movements, how conventional, exactly like a classical piano sonata, a 30-second upbeat to a longer, slower, if you like, second movement, two minutes, 23 seconds, and then a concluding one minute and 40-second finale, which borrows borrows elements from both movements and unifies the whole structure you could say. But that shape and especially the way that David Tudor dramatised the boundaries between each of the movements in his performance, frames the piece as I've said before, within the conventions of the classical, just as surely as Reichenberg's paintings are framed by being in a gallery. We're not looking at nothing. We're not listening to nothing. We're doing so in a concert hall so that our listening has a precise beginning and end. Our experiences and memories of the piece will be shaped by the performers separating one movement from the other, one span of non science from another four thirty three is in, in this interpretation is as indebted to the functioning of the classical convention uh, conventions as is a Beethoven piano sonata and incidentally this Copyrightable intentionality of 433 was proved in 2002 when the composer Mike Batt, uh, as a gag, came up with a minute of silence that he described as by Batt Cage on an album. Well, his publishers, uh, Cage's publishers, sued him, uh, and Mike Batt settled out of court for an undisclosed six-figure sum. <laughs> Proving the point, though, that 433 is as firmly a musical work as a Beethoven symphony or a piece by Brian Ferneyhough. Just to think, though, about where this goes, because we're going to introduce Rolf Hind very soon. This is John Cage's final notation for 433. The simplest possible realization of the piece. Three words. Strange words, though. The repetition of tacit. Tacit is something you usually get if you're a brass player playing a Wagner opera or Verdi, you know, and you're not not playing that aria or that ensemble. Right now. Countless tacits are being played around the world as brass players wait for their fortissimo in Verdi, Wagner or or Mahler. But Cage actually amplified the description of this with with a, a few sentences of text, where he says, the title of this work is the total length in minutes and seconds of its performance. However, the work may be performed by any instrumentalists and last any length of time well that 's a pretty gigantic existential change isn 't it from the way from what David Tudor performed in one thousand nine hundred and fifty two could be a second long could last until the heat death of the universe and it gets more problem- problematic than that too because if i 've said that this piece is all about a concentrated act and application of listening, it follows that every time you or I are doing that we 're actually doing performing a piece by John Cage, which means that we owe peter 's edition his publisher an awful lot of money. Um, <laughs> And it also suggests a rather more problematic interpretation of Cage's apparent egolessness, which is that in copywriting the idea of what listening and non-silence can be, Cage effectively copyrighted the world. Just a thought. So... 4.33, 4.33, Meditation, Icon and Tattoo, uh, literally. Here's the right arm of the composer Jim Altieri. But above all, it's a piece of composed musical experience that won't stop being controversial. It's a piece whose performance is always reported whenever it's done by major orchestras. The BBC Symphony Orchestra, uh, they played it a few years ago. Uh, that was a uh, page five in The Sun, and it was even lampooned on Jazz Club in The Fast Show. Uh, no other avant-garde work of music has achieved so much in popular consciousness. Now, uh, given how many times we've realised at 4.33 this evening, I, I, I can give you the the, the sense of. Uh, you can imagine urban noises, we can imagine environmental noises. Everything is allowed in a sense, and everything is, on one hand, the property of John Cage. I would say, though, that we're indebted to, absolutely indebted to these pieces still as paradox and as way of listening. But to find out more about where this goes next in compositional creativity, I'd like you to uh, applaud Rolf Hind, who's going to come and uh, talk to us for the remainder of today's talk. Ladies and gentlemen, Rolf Hind. And, oh, I beg your pardon. Look, Rolf, those ideas, without thinking about the uh, cage as ego, has that piece and has Cage's listening practices uh, informed you as a composer? And if so, how? And as a human being? Um, so I'm just
2: taking it all in. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, what's interesting about hearing, talk, hearing Cage's piece talked about so long, and this is not to take away. <laughs> No, to take away at all from all the interesting observations you make about it is that it is not about the conceptualization of it; it's about the actual experience of doing it, which is uh, which is why we're going to do that. I hope you'll join us in doing something similar at the end. Um, so that um, my background is, you know, in a training as a classical pianist and composer, but in the last twenty years of my life, I've been very drawn to. Indian philosophies and languages of various kinds, and also I meditate, so um, I feel I feel a really strong connection with that. Um, the kind of raw physicality of it, I think, which again you can't you can't quite um, conceptualise. Well, well, you can, you can, but uh, it, it's 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 never a. A, some, a friend of mine was saying the other day, "This is um, maybe there's religious experts in the audience, in which case apologies that." Um, the big difference between a swathe of Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy is Eastern philosophy generally comes with practices. So it, it is achieved through a, a form of practice. I mean, your experience enhances your understanding of philosophy, that's what I mean. Um, so I'd urge you to go home and um, play four minutes, 33 seconds for yourself, or you know, one of you play it while one of you is listening. I have played it a few times myself. Um, It's more fun to listen to than to play actually. (laughs) Um, But then it's, you know, it's even it's a really interesting crucible for for the player because it does, like Tom said, it sets up all those strange expectations and and the subdivisions and there's the performance space and there's all that ritual, all the lineaments, the skeleton is there. And you still find yourself actually acting and reacting in the same way the adrenaline flows in the same way um, and if you hold the audience you know because you're taught to be a performer in, with just a certain amount of performative tension um, then they will experience that as well um, yeah so
0: Hear a live performance, or play one. <laughs> well, and we'll get the, I mean, through Pauline We'll yeah, this that's will, true. Will experience this role. But it's the it, that, that sense of what Cage was saying about what a, a cough is and how to understand that. Understand, I just wonder, how have you made this part of... Some of the things you're talking about in terms of precisely rightly saying that, you know, talking about things, conceptualising thinking. I mean, in a way, what you're doing as a composer who, who is... Unlike four thirty, you know, you're writing notes on a page, determining what comes next. You're not using chance operations. You're I writing Rolf music. I mostly so, write,
2: you know, quite old-fashioned, no. <laughs> um, fully notated music in that sense. Um,
0: sometimes not, but so, mostly. So how can these ideas of relating to sound, if you like, in a Cajun way, well, or think, allowing sounds to be? I be think part what is opened
2: do. up for everyone is is the idea that there aren't really um, high and low sounds. But you know, many other things have opened up. That yeah, you mean high and low in terms of? Uh, in, in terms of um, g- good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, our sounds and other people's sounds. There's a, there's just a, there's a, there's a fascinating range of sounds. Uh, and you can choose as a composer to um, set them against each other in a landscape just as objects, or you can choose to find more connections between them. But um, nothing's ruled out as a sound source, I'm I'm particularly partial to kind of the sounds of um, as Cage was actually um, what you might call um, junkyard instruments Uh, and a lot of my music has something to do with India, Um, so that's probably gone at a deep level where where, um, I'm just used to the street sounds Um, and it kind of informs as well as, you know, there being melodic and harmonic elements and other elements of control in it, you have this very, very big palette of sounds which are all perfectly equal and acceptable, and um, I think that's you know that's changed a lot in the last seventy, eighty years.
0: So it includes, quote unquote, noise. Includes new ways of thinking about the instruments of the orchestra. We'll hear in, in uh, the Maya movement of Maya session, hmm. a tremendous variety of things that you're doing with the orchestra. Uh, this, this piece and this first excerpt we're going to hear Maya, is precisely what you're saying. It's it's the idea of. Um, an openness to a way of listening that, in, that allows a whole world of sounds, everyday sounds, whatever they might be. Well, uh, it's actually a,
2: also the uh, there is a connection with Cage because it's it is basically a piano concerto um, with a prepared piano. Um, as a pianist, I you know I play the regular piano a lot, but then when it comes to composing a piece for the regular piano, the um, the backlog of history is just so overwhelming. So the, the, I can see that also for Cage, I think the, the idea of a prepared piano is very liberating. It doesn't doesn't call to mind all those antecedents. Um, so I tend to use it in pieces. Uh, and then also it kind of matches very well with other sounds I hope that, that I've used, which are these more, um, if you like, plastic and tinny sounds and junky sounds sometimes. Um, the piece takes its title from Two ideas, two kind of really basic ideas in um, Hindu philosophy. So, Maya is uh, usually translated as illusion. So, you know, the, the the chaotic, illusory world that we live in, which is actually, you know, just a dream <laughs> in, in in some people's um, in some people's worldview. Um, and then Sesha is, uh, the other movement is the kind of reduction of the dream to its absolute essentials. So it's, it's what's going on behind the dream um, there. And then it's the same music, but one is clouded with a landscape of objects and sometimes seems to teach on the edge of chaos, and the other is very simple and direct.
0: But what, um, should we should anything you want to say about the orchestra? First, uh, Non-concept. Let's hear. No, Let's hear. <laughs> 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 so this is chaos, illusion, the dream world in which some of us uh, live—at least some of the time. It's a tune out, Rolf, but it's, all, it? but, it's also, but, no, but it's also grounded in sounds that seem to refer to the outside world. Whistle, car horns, uh, some of the, the accordion sounds, the non-vibrato in that small string section. Uh, but how do you go about listening to what those sounds are and then combining them? In, in the, what, what has to happen for your composition if that to take place?
2: Um, well, I suppose each composer... Gradually develops um, a sort of library of sounds that they really love and are comfortable with, and you know. And, and you try and expand it all the time, clearly. But um, my piece, for example, I've I've written a few orchestral pieces, but I've never written for flutes. I, I just don't know what to do with flutes, and um, so it's you know it's piccolos. And if I write, and I, I like certain kinds of sounds which are more raw and more violent sometimes, or very sweet. Um, but certain um, Western instruments, for me, have too a redolent, a sound of something else, um, which is, kind of throws me off. Or they just vibrate in a funny way, and it doesn't kind of it doesn't fit in the um, in the general orchestration. But I, you know, that's very, very personal.
0: But how, um, do, you, do you find them through listening? I mean, the, the, the idea of that listening is fundamental to what you do as a composer. You're, you're searching for, the, for, the, for those kinds of oh, yeah. yeah. I I mean, I... through listening, through what you do as a player, through understanding the sounds that we, the instruments can make, through flipping them on their head. I mean, through finding the insides of conventional sounds, searching with your ears. Yes. <laughs>
2: um, so um, if ever I've written for any instrument, including an instrument in in an orchestral setting like this, I will have worked quite closely with players, individual players, to find out, you know, how a particular sound will work, whether it's kind of practical or sometimes um, practical. And and a lot of ideas for me come from um, the process of meditation, which I you know I do on a kind of daily basis. So if I'm if something is uh, What's the expression? Yeah, it's so just something kind of fermenting in me, then sometimes it'll suddenly become too clear to me, or oh, that's the sound that works with that, or that's the thing I really love, or that's the thing I once heard, something like it, It's drawn in like that, but it, it definitely comes from all aspects of my experience, and I listen to all sorts of other types of music. I'm very keen on all sorts of folk music, and I like some quite um, heavy and industrial rock music, and I, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of things which kind of inform it.
0: Uh, well, let's, let's hear it. It's, Shesha now, which is the, the yeah. So this
2: way. is the the really this is the this is the snake. <laughs> um, <laughs> snake. Shesha is the snake, or the Vishnu, big Hindu Hindu god, sits on. And uh, when the universe is destroyed, all that will be left is the snake. So it does, it also means the thing that remains. It's what what remains. So it's just what's left when all that chaos is burnt off, if you like. Let's
0: Those to prepare the prepared piano, how, how, that thump sound at the end of the piano, how do you do that? Um, I think that was a bass drum, actually. <laughs> well, I thought there was something like at the end of a prepared oh, there's, um,
2: there's a few notes with blue tack on, and then there's some yeah. notes where, <laughs> and, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just very close to the recording. It's not... <laughs> it's
0: kind of very funny. <laughs> how, how, how do you find that is it a way like the piece is listening to itself there it's a slowed down version of the music we have heard before yeah. for you as a composer but how do you how do you listen the, the idea of this trying to find trying to find music that's going to be the listening that might be left at the end of the universe i mean wh- wh- how, how do you where do you listen to find those sounds um. I
2: don't I'm, If you thought about it as something as grand as that, I don't think you'd get started, <laughs> it's, um I just, I, I, I thought of it as a very, as a quite a simple exercise, like um, how complicated could I be with some material to fulfill the first movement and um, and to be near the edge of like the precipice of chaos and how simple would I dare to be because it gets even simpler that movement. It just kind of rises and gets thinner and there's singing and it disappears. Um, and you know to kind of do that and be within what I consider the confines of taste. Um, I'm <laughs> that was the, that was the challenge. Um, I think I you know I think if you start thinking really kind of um, big grand thoughts, you probably wouldn't put one one <laughs> note. After the other, really.
0: Well, the ne- next thing we're going to see there is a pretty grand thought, which is which is the first mindfulness opera, Lost yeah. in Thought, which is performed at near where we are now, Elisa St Luke's. Uh, this is, I mean, one of the things thinking about the way 433 works within the, the conventions or against them, with all of us as, a, as an audience. I mean, your opera is absolutely doing that to to in a way a far more ambitious scale. You're literally reconceiving what the purpose and, and, uh, and relationship between musicians and uh, audience members might be. Mm. Um, I know it's a three and a half hour experience, we'll watch a couple of minutes of it, <laughs> but it's the the, the sense of how, how you went about, again, trying to inculcate or develop a different kind of listening, both for the musicians and for uh, the audience members who will see. And how, how, how do you make mindfulness into um, it?
2: Well, I didn't. Uh, it was just the Publicity department who thought it should be the world's first mindfulness (laughs) software. That you You didn't talk about it that way. I I
0: promise uh, you did. I'm not even
2: sorry. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, as a as a a, someone who's done quite a lot of silent retreats, I I wanted to try and squeeze the format of a silent. Well, originally the idea was to make it last a day, but that's too impractical. Um, Squeeze the format of what you would normally do on a silent retreat into a day and add some musical elements where they felt completely organic which was a real challenge because there aren't many places where they do so occasionally the music will emerge almost organically from kind of just heard just sounds that people make and then the musicians take it up and it becomes a piece let's just watch what happened
0: of oh. after we... Fragment of of lost in thought. Uh, and Rolf, I'm aware of the, the, the four minutes that are available to us. Uh, apologies. Oh, so, is that uh, all? Well, yes. <laughs> so, so, what I'd I just, just wanted to stress, yes, I'd please, say please, something sorry. really, yes, in please, case please, any please. of you are meditators,
2: ethically, yes. Yes. I don't approve of filming people meditating, but we had to have some film. Um, okay. of it's course. meant to be a very private collective experience, but I, I think actually some of them are actors. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Illusions are being shattered here. Rob. Either way, we have the impression there, and as the sounds themselves, you could see that where the musicians are going through the veil of the fourth wall that usually can uh, that usually separates performers from audience around them, and so that the 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 idea of uh, an active participation as yeah. listener that's what that
2: there's no audience.
0: Yeah, everyone is a participant. Yeah. Everyone is. Uh, listening together and creating the, the has the same responsibility for that experience yeah. which is um, and I apologies for how short that discussion about okay. was but it means that that's an upbeat to what we're all going to do now um, Rolf th- this is one of Pauline was uh, tuning meditation from 1971 uh, we're in, instead of singing we can hum this uh, um, it will require us having a similar kind of listening sensitivity to each other here in the museum in London and all of you watching online Rolf
2: Um, Yeah, I I was hoping that this would just send you you away happy and calm. We'll we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sometimes Pauline's instructions are a little complex, so I think we just take this really really simply is probably best, and then um, we're going to turn that off so you don't have to worry about reading it. Uh, It's simply to inhale and then exhale and hum a note. Anyone who feels comfortable doing that, but please join in, because it's rather lovely if everyone does it. But, but you know, you won't be marked. It doesn't matter what kind of noise you make. I don't have a great voice. Um, and you just try and find a space. So if you hear someone near you singing a certain note, maybe try not to sing that note. That's the only instruction. That's it. That's, a different note? Yeah, just a different note.
0: So uh, we'll, um, we'll turn the instructions off now. and. We're clear about what we're doing. We're going to inhale. If you do, we lead us in inhaling. Or I would just inhale, inhale when you feel ready. Okay. to inhale. Okay. So it's over to all of us now. Mm-hmm. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That's gilded our bridge to seven o'clock when the museum turns into, a, we have to escape whilst Samuel peeps and everyone else re-emerges from their papers and everything else that happens when the museum is shut. It's a beautiful bridge of your listening. Thank you very much indeed for your participation this evening and huge thanks to Rolfine for being here. Thank you all very much. Indeed.